Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Web Perspectives. My name's Sean, and in this 10th episode, Mike and I discuss strategies on how to keep code simple. What does it mean to write simple code? And what suggestions can we give to emerging front-end developers? How much should coding standards bog us down when we really just want to get our idea out there? How much of front-end web development is just muscle memory as opposed to giving ourselves freedom of expression when it comes to writing code? With a wealth of tools shoved down our throats with modern build pipelines and CI, from Angular CLI to Create React App to even Ember CLI and Vue CLI, how can we keep it simple? Find out in this one-hour episode of Web Perspectives. Hi, and welcome to Web Perspectives, the podcast where we cover the minutia of front-end web development, from HTML to CSS to JavaScript. Learn the ins and outs of the industry and supercharge your web development career. Hello, Mike. Welcome back again. Sean. So today we uh, we have a topic called Keep It Super Simple. So. Uh, this this was suggested by you, Mike, and I have some thoughts about this. The whole idea of really reducing scope and reducing the amount of code. What do you think of when you hear about keep it super simple? And what made you want to talk about this specifically? My mind has been really preoccupied with junior developers. <laughs> oh, right. And, and and people who are approaching this for the yeah. first time. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think that software development is hard. And there's certainly enough developers out there who are going to try to make it hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for some of those people, let me just point out that job security through obscurity is not a real thing. If you're that nervous about keeping your job, maybe you should try to keep things a little bit more simple and a little bit more readable and be a better programmer by the end of it. Huzzah. How about that? Yeah, I think a lot of junior developers, they just want to do everything. And part of that comes Mm -hmm. as a result of them not knowing what they like or what they enjoy. We talked about that in our last episode. Mm-hmm. I think I think when you first approach software, you think it's overly complicated. It's deep. There's a thousand files. Nothing makes sense. Clearly, the best way to do this is to scatter the code that you're working on across multiple different files because the relationship between all those files isn't necessarily immediate. Sometimes it can yeah. be pretty obscure yeah. or even obtuse at times. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're getting into questions about engineering architecture, those more advanced concepts. I think if we're going to look at trying to keep things super simple, then let's take a look at it from the perspective of somebody who's just getting into this and why it looks so challenging to them and how they can make it seem more simple. How about that? How about we take it from there, from that perspective? What do you think? I think it makes sense, but I also, I think it helps to understand the perspective of the junior developer. Mm. Like, I remember what it felt like as a junior developer. I don't know if you do. I really felt flustered and I didn't really know where to start or what I enjoyed doing. And so I oftentimes just got my hands on whatever I could. And we talked about how that becomes important, especially when you begin as a junior developer. So I think maybe we can outline the problem of why it becomes challenging for junior developers and why junior developers generally try to do as much as they can when they start out and how that can backfire sometimes. If there are some junior developers out there who are listening right now and they're interested in trying to figure out how to make things make sense, uh, let's see what we can do to try to answer that question. Yeah. And I kind of also got to address that voice in the back of my head that's telling me, you haven't been a junior developer in 20 years. What do you know about the junior developer experience? Uh, Honestly, this is one of the problems that I have when working with juniors. I make assumptions about what I think they should know. Mm -hmm. If you've got two years of experience in this, there are certain things that I expect you to know, and maybe you haven't had a chance to go deep on that yet, and maybe you really don't know it. And honestly, we talk about front-end and Mm back-end developers, and we talk about full stack, and part of the assumptions that I assume is that people understand server-client architecture, but they don't. They don't understand that deeply at least not in the same way that somebody who's been doing this for 20 years can maybe ramble on for an hour-long podcast, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to focus it down is just file organization and file structure in folders. You know, one of the, one of the examples there being is you don't really want to have anything that's 
um, publicly accessible that includes source code or uh, a .env file, for example. Mm. You know, if you've got a public folder and everything's being served out of the public folder, there should not be a .env file in there. Yeah. If you have source code and you're serving your index.html file from the root of all of your source code, then let's understand that all of that source code could be accessible based on tampering with some URLs, for example. And if you run VS Code and you do live share, there's a good possibility you're sharing your server, <laughs> in <laughs> which case somebody else can just hit whatever if they've connected to your machine, a live share or code with me from JetBrains, mm-hmm. and they can just get access to everything because they just hit whatever slash the file and hit the resource, in this case, the file name, and they've got themselves served a, a JavaScript file or an HTML file that maybe they shouldn't have had access to in the first place. Yep. This is pretty basic stuff. Trying to demystify that top-level folder, there's always going to be certain folders that you're going to see. Public is one of them. I think we just changed topics into architecture <laughs> from keep it simple. Well, there's so much to it. And, and architecture, mm-hmm. no, architecture is important because mm-hmm. if you don't understand the underlying architecture, you're going to confuse yourself in a lot of places and where things go, where to put files. Where do you put this new component that you wrote? Does it go in in a module if you're writing angular does it go into a subfolder what's the architecture that underlies the decisions that we make as front-end developers i'll actually throw in a story here because i used to work on the curriculum at lighthouse labs and one of the maintainers had written a section where basically the students write their first component the junior developers before you even become a junior developer you do the course the boot camp and you you create your task with creating a button component mm-hmm. and This might seem like, oh, of course, you create a button component because that's really easy to understand, right? But the more I looked at it, the more I sort of thought, this actually doesn't make much sense because this is the wrong way to write a component. If you ever listen to Shop Talk Show, Chris Coyer talks about this idea in one of his episodes. He talks about how in a lot of cases, people would create a component for like icons and they'll use like a span tag. The problem with React is that everybody just uses a div because a lot of the developers that go into (laughs) that world don't have the correct HTML training, unfortunately. So in my position where I had some control over the curriculum, I was basically saying it makes no sense to create a button component when we already have the button element. That doesn't really get to the bottom of why we have components. We have components to group our functionalities together. And this goes to keeping it super simple. If you want to keep things super simple, don't redo the work that has already been done. Don't go and create a button component. There's already a button element. You don't need to go and create a button component. If you have an icon, do you really need an icon component? Why don't you just have an SVG or like a directive or something like that that just renders your SVG? And I say directive for the view users out there. But really, I mean, the point is that we don't really need to have all these abstractions. And I think that gets to the first point that you mentioned earlier, Mike, of reducing the amount of abstractions. I ended up changing the curriculum to basically say, this is an example. (laughs) This is just an example. You you don't want to be creating a button component. It doesn't make much sense because you're redoing the work that you can just get done by using the native button element. And it might sound really trivial, but you don't need to do that. What do you use a component for? Well, if you have like a card, the classic atomic design, the canonical example where you have some media and then a description, that's when you use a component. And in that case, you might use something like a figure tag and a fig caption tag instead of using just divs. That's the idea I think that I'm getting out of reducing the amount of abstractions. So don't create a component just for button. Don't create a component for an element that already exists. Don't create an abstraction for the sake of doing an abstraction because you think that everything has to be an abstraction because that's how advanced architecture works. Yeah. The fundamental understanding here is DRY or dry. Don't repeat yourself. The converse of that is sometimes referred to as wet, W-E-T, or write everything twice. Ah, I didn't know that one. Yeah, dry and wet is one of those things that can help you understand why we do an abstraction. And sometimes we'll do an abstraction because we don't want to repeat ourselves, which also leads into another methodology of trying to keep things super simple is not engineering for the future. So sometimes you'll think, oh, this button component is something that I could use again in the future. Yeah. So I'm going to create the abstraction now. I'm going to put it over in this folder so that I can come back and I can use it again later. Now, if you do not have it on your specification to write it, 
right now multiple times, then I would say don't engineer for the future. Keep it simple. Don't repeat yourself. Leave it where it's at. And then, you know, if you're going to be with this project for a long time and you're in a startup situation or you're building a prototype or something like that, then chances are that definitely applies. If you're working on a really large piece of software that's going for scale and you have a million users and you're on a really large team, the process is going to look entirely differently. You kind of have to take it with a bit of context here. So the advice that I'm talking about is going to be really great if you're a solo developer or on a small team in a small company. If you're in a large organization or a lead developer, your specifications are going to be very different. Your process is going to be different. But generally speaking, one of the ways that you can keep things simple is by doing a shitty first draft. Get something together that looks like a line of code that everybody can get around a computer and point at and say, oh, you created a button component over here. You actually don't need to do that. We have them in the subfolder, subfolder, subfolder button subfolder of this type (laughs) of button. That's probably the best way to learn that that exists is to do a really quick first draft. And one of the things about that is oftentimes you only do the presentational layer. You don't do the functionality right away. There shouldn't be an API call that is written before any presentational is done, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that presentational layer is the first thing that you can take a screenshot of and you can say, is this what you had in your head now that it's down on paper? And I'll guarantee you that somebody's going to change everything up based on what they see in actuality in context of the web. And that's a big fight. The number of times I've seen people write a whole bunch of code in support of one tiny little feature that then gets tossed out because, oh, oh, you know what? That actually doesn't work the way that we were thinking of it. It doesn't have the bang or pop or sizzle that we thought it would have. Uh, Forget it. And now you're out a week because you didn't put the button in first and showed off the screenshot after about an hour and a half. To that point, exactly. Why would you create a button component when you already have an HTML element to do it? Is it just because you want to have special classes on your button every time you create the component or you render the component? Is that really why? Because if that's the case, maybe you, you got to rethink that design a bit. Is it really that hard to type in class is equal to primary on the buttons that you want to have primary buttons? Do you want to be using like something like Tailwind where you have dasherized classes that are abbreviated and 30, 40% of developers can understand? Is it worth that extra effort to try to like abstract away all of those CSS rules? Is it really worth that? Those are questions that you ask yourself as you architect, but they also come into play and they also can really affect your understanding of the code, how simple the code gets. That's what I think of when I think of simple. I think of less abstractions, less complexity. When I look at a project that uses Tailwind, I find myself confused because I don't know what SM6 means. Oh, wait, so it's a two-column layout? Okay, so why 12? Why 12 columns? That's just something arbitrary. (laughs) We came up with that years and years ago, but now we have CSS Grid. Why do we have these arbitrary column numbers of 12? What happens in five years when we have CSS Grid Mm -hmm. mostly used by most developers, which we've kind of already reached there anyway, reducing everything down to the presentation layer. You don't need to have fancy classes. You don't need to have Tailwind. Keep it super simple. Write your HTML in a very simple way using the native elements that we already have. We have button element. We have the dialogue element. It doesn't mean that you can't use it. It just means that certain browsers may not render them in the same way. Mm -hmm. Do you really need to have that consistency? So that all boils down to requirements. And so my point to this, to add on to what you said, Mike, is to reduce the scope. When I think of keeping it super simple, as a, you know, as a senior developer, as a senior engineer, the first thing I think about is scope creep and reducing that scope can really affect the idea of keeping it simple. Scope creep is kind of one of those things that you have to learn how to manage. And maybe we're trying to keep things simple is where we're trying to come in and managing people now is part yeah. of keeping it simple. Maybe the simplest thing to understand with scope creep is to understand that it is coming and to prepare for it and to not spend any yeah. time thinking, oh, no, this is different. This customer is different. This client's different. They give me all the latitude to do whatever I want here. And there's always going to be Mm. changes, right? How we go about handling those changes and how we go about communicating the changes that we want on both sides of the equation here is kind of the critical part of keeping it simple. One of the things that we do to try and keep things simple when it comes to the design phase is to do all of our work on whiteboards. We don't use Adobe XD for user experience. Why would somebody spend three weeks mocking up an interface when you could spend three weeks building an interface in HTML? 
I've never understood that. I've never understood why we can't just sit around a whiteboard and have a really good conversation about it, capture that, and desaturate it into black and white so that it's not a question of who likes the color blue or who likes the color red as primary colors. It's just straight up. It's just black and white, wireframe, low fidelity on a whiteboard. Let's share it around with some people and solicit their thoughts independently, individually, and quietly after the meeting because things change. Things always change. And if we're going to do this in an agile and meaningful way, we're going to try and plan for that change. We're going to try and understand that change is coming and we're going to try and shorten the cycle as much as possible so that we can move forward with the project as quickly as possible. That's the whole goal, to simplify, 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 to shorten, 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 and get that communication happening. One of the reasons why I think keep it super simple is an important concept to talk about in software development world. It applies from the architecture side of things, trying to keep things simple, to your workflow management side, which is something that they don't teach you in school, which is frustrating sometimes. The workflow management side of things is also important for trying to keep that side of things simple. I don't know how many online web-based workflow management tools have been thrust in front of me as a developer over the last 20 years. Each one sucks more than the last one, and each one is supposedly more powerful and more capable and has more features. You know what? I got a notebook and a pen, and it has been my steady companion regardless of what I've used constantly all the time and it has done a better job than anything that you pay $20 a month to have a membership to use. I think I think it all boils down to fancy tools, buttons, knobs, all the stuff that we kind of fell in love with in the late 2000s. Mm-hmm. So I remember around 2009, that's when CSS3 really became a popular thing and you started to see interfaces. I remember using like subtle patterns, which really isn't a thing anymore, which you overlay all these really nice patterns that you, the objective as a junior developer for myself was to make these really cool designs because I love that. I love the feeling of making these really beautiful designs. It's like art, right? So people love to look at it. They like to see it. Mm -hmm. And you get a sense of pride when you create a user interface that just looks good. But that completely evades the problem that we talk about right now, the problem of satisfying the requirements that the customer gives you. And in some cases, you may not have Mm -hmm. those requirements, but then it behooves you to get those requirements, to solicit those requirements. Requirements elicitation. This is the thing we talk about in software engineering, of Mm -hmm. finding out what your software needs to do. And I mean needs to do because I talk about that in the sense of MVP or minimum viable product. Oh man, I could I could do an hour on MVP and how everybody yeah. gets it so wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I've got three chapters in my book on that actually. <laughs> okay. Let's shortlist that for another time. So trying to keep things simple on the on the management side, it means writing code that's flexible. And again, if you're working at Netflix, appreciate what you do. Thanks for all of the over-engineering that you've done over the years so that I can watch a show whenever I want to. But if you're working in a startup or you're a solar developer in-house for a small to medium-sized company or you're on a very small team, you know that at any day, Paul in sales is going to sell an idea. Not a feature, (laughs) but just an idea. And that idea is going to get traction and your customers are going to love the idea because he's been listening to their needs and wants and if we had it, it would be great. And he's going to come in really excited about how he wants this thing, but it's going to require some change on the software. I have seen developers lose their hair because they couldn't re-engineer something fast enough. They didn't create their software flexibly, as it were. I think that boils down to too many yeses. And as you get more senior in your positions, I think you start to say no more. As a junior developer, you tend to gravitate towards, yes, I'll do that. And you accept it with open arms and you say, yeah, I'll definitely get that done. And you put an estimate down of like, that'll just take me three days. Well, four days later, lo and behold, you still have 30% of your work done. You still haven't refactored out the components that you needed to refactor. You had your jQuery code, legacy jQuery code that you thought would be super simple (laughs) to give you a counterexample, Mike. And Uh, now you find that this other library that your client wants you to pull in, you have to pull in a polyfill or you need to use Axios. Now all of a sudden you've got to rework all this stuff. You didn't know that you'd have to do this. You didn't know that when you signed up that that would end up falling into the scope of this particular work research the amount of work required before you go in and say yes 
look at what you need to do, whether it involves redoing parts of the user interface or maybe just changing parts of the components that are used or maybe even in some cases, the build tooling that gets used because maybe you need to bring in a package that doesn't support one of the libraries you use. And so you have to, you know, work around that somehow. So it kind of falls into like the UI engineering field as opposed to just front-end development. So I think that all goes to say, if you do take on work, it's nice to have somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of, like a project manager. Mm -hmm. So where I work, we have a project manager that has to sign off on requirements before we start working on it. And I think that has helped us a lot in our company to determine the scope of each individual, we call them issue or ticket in JIRA, that helps us to refine the scope more so that when it comes time to do them, we've got everything kind of broken down into subtasks and then we can break it down and understand the scope and then how long will this thing take? How will that take? This might sound like waterfall, but it really becomes important, especially in a large scale enterprise. Mm. So to break that down into a smaller sort of tip, I think reduce the scope by understanding the requirements beforehand and understand what you absolutely have to do, which goes to the first point, what is necessary to achieve the MVP or just the bare minimum to achieve the result that your customers expect. One of the benefits of keeping your software simple is that it's easier to go back and change. Yeah, less moving parts. Yeah, less moving parts is a, is a big thing. It's easier to read. Everybody talks about code readability, and that means something different to everybody. In the same way that we're agile means something different to everybody. Your readability of your code, you know, a little side rant here is if everybody in your office writes code exactly the same way, you don't have code readability. You have an asshole. <laughs> what? What do you mean? It drives me up the wall when you have one person in the entire office who actually makes the decision as to exactly how everybody's going to write code. Well, you know what? Other people have different opinions about what is readable. Other people have different opinions about what makes good code. Other people have these opinions and they're evolving constantly all the time. Can we be a little experimental sometimes? Can we try writing code in a little bit of a different way? Can we break from our linter? Can we turn that off for a little while and try something a little bit different and see how it works for us? These rigid, hard set rules that Airbnb spit out oh, yeah, yeah. seven years ago. This is how code shall be written in order to improve readability. Uh, man, have you ever seen how complicated they are? Well, I, I know firsthand because I was the primary person to come up with our coding standards at my company. And mm -hmm. I drove this effort because I firmly believe still that consistency really helps the company a lot. You could even chalk this down to simplicity because mm -hmm. if you follow the same rule set in terms of the way that you write code, whether that boils down to a linter or not, if you follow a consistent way of writing the code, I think that really adds to the readability because you do not surprised when you see some weirdly closed HTML tag. Just just a little bit of rant for you as well, Mike, because I'm, I can't, mm -hmm. I, I get why this, this happens, but most of the popular frameworks today, they put like a space before the self-closing tag, like for example, on inputs, right? That's a self-closing tag. And mm -hmm. what happens is that if you turn on word wrap, you get this really weird jarring thing with your code where you see like a slash and then the, the angle bracket which is like weird because mm -hmm. it's on its own line. Like why did all these frameworks? Is that a universal experience for everybody who writes code? Or is that an individual experience for the person who's chosen to use that feature in that particular editor? It's not, exactly. I have a very strong opinion on what I would like to see when it comes to my experience in my editor. And I know most people don't enable word wrap in their editors because the way that code wraps around seems really weird to them. And I get that too, but I think for us, when everybody started to follow that rule, I found it like so much easier to read the code. When I'm reading something and I see that it's incorrect, I get this feeling even still, despite my senior level position. It was much worse when I was junior, but now I tell myself just to ignore it if I see something that I don't necessarily agree with. For example, like the space before the self-closing tag, I find that very jarring to me when I read code. So I made that effort. Maybe you could call me the asshole because I enforced these standards. And anytime we got a merge request that had a deviation with the space, and then the slash mm -hmm. and angle bracket in the HTML tags, I would basically say, let's get rid of that space because I use WordRap. And I'm not saying everybody on my team has to use WordRap, but I do. And for me, it's a really difficult experience. So if we just have this universal sort of approach where both parties can win, like I don't think those people who don't have WordRap enabled, I don't think that they suffer all that much because there's no space after the last attribute in a self-closing HTML tag. I don't think they really suffer, but maybe I'm wrong about that. 
But the experience after once we had that consistency, I really do think it made a huge difference. And I feel so proud of the code base because I like <laughs> I like working in a in a way that I'm familiar with. I like that level of familiarity and I like having the consistency. I like having the linting because when we have new developers come on our team, it's not like I have to tell them, you know, don't do this, don't do this. They just have a linter that tells them that needs to have a semicolon. And in some cases, like with Prettier and the new tools, you can just mm -hmm. press save and all of a sudden everything just gets formatted anyway. I can, can go on and on about coding standards, but basically to answer your question about Airbnb, we took that style guide. I took that to start out with and I made it more readable the way I thought. We had a collaborative effort where other people on our team were able to come in and make suggestions and make comments using Confluence. Mm -hmm. And we ended up coming up with a, a style guide and it was great because, you know, recently we had some new developers come on our team and they weren't mm -hmm. familiar with our style guide. They could definitely look through the existing code, but, you know, they were able to come in and I would just sent them a link to the style guide and, and they had all these examples of how to write the code, very like helpful examples, some humorous. <laughs> so anyway, I think it really makes a difference when you have that consistency and you could say that that's a complexity. That's another level that sits on top of your application. But I actually like having that. I think it's great for large organizations to like back you up on your point though, Mike. I think on smaller projects, I don't think it matters at all if you deviate from having a semicolon or no semicolon. If it's a one-off, if it actually adds to the communication of what the code does when you read it, if that actually helps, I think there's nothing wrong with turning off linting or throwing in a switch statement because you don't like writing an if else for all of your React reducers it's a very contextual thing, but I think having consistency on a large scale really makes a difference for smaller projects. I don't think it matters at all. I don't know at what the impact of that would be in a larger project. It's not my, it's not my thing. I'm not focused on those. I'm focused on very small teams. And the last thing I want to do is prevent somebody from writing code the way that they write code, you know, simply because it doesn't happen to get through the linter. For example, let's say we have a team lead who uses semicolons at the end of their lines in JavaScript, and then we get a new team lead who doesn't. What do we do then? Do we go and we take the last year and a half of code that was written with semicolons and write some script to remove semicolons or find ways to filter them through or rewrite the linter? Do we spend all the time getting rid of them? Or do we just say, okay, so that's old code. We know that the previous developer wrote that code and we can tell because we can see that it had semicolons or, and then we know that this is new code because not only does it not have semicolons, it also uses the space in this particular area or it has indentation of four instead of two. I don't think that this counts as anything more than a difference in style and style is a difference of opinion and I don't think it's necessary for us to take some other developers' opinions about what is and isn't readable code and try to issue a standard that for here on out, it shall be decreed that everyone shall write this or, or not pass the linter exam. What's the downside of complying with the existing coding standards? Like, How does it evolve? How does it change? Well, why? You know, everybody gets really comfortable writing code in a very particular yeah. way. And then all of, you know, uh, let's say two years down the road, somebody comes up with something that's pretty cool. And now you need to go and you need to change it. And this isn't something that people are used to doing in, in larger organizations, I think. Like what? I don't know. Like what though? Well, let's take a look at the last two years of the way that you've written code and compare that to the two years before that. Mm -hmm. Have you been writing code the exact same way for the last four years, or has there been an evolution of how that works? I think I would always just write for the standards of the team that I, I found myself on. So mm -hmm. I just conform to the team that I work on. When I work on my own, maybe I would deviate slightly if it made more sense. Like I said earlier, if you're on mm -hmm. a small team or just working on a side project, it probably doesn't matter that you keep any consistency although ideally you do because then it makes it really simple to, to read your code i think okay consistency really adds to code readability regardless of what standards you have if you follow the standards and you have some kind of a consistency that makes it a lot easier to go back and read your code i i, I just found that from my experience though well i i guess i'm i'm a thumb pointer right like what can I do is my question. What can I do to read your code? My question isn't what can you do to write code that I can read? 
What do you mean by that? I mean, if I can't read your code, I'm not going to put that on you. I'm not going to say that your decision to put a space because you use word wrap prevents me from reading your code. I can read your code just fine. Yeah, like, I, I, know? I know, yeah. And not, not only that, I can identify that it was you who wrote that code based on the stylistic expressions that you have and the way that you write your code. I can go through that for every designer or every developer on my team, and I know exactly who wrote it just based on how it was written. But here's my problem with that approach. You're saying that somebody might write code differently, and that will work out for you because you can still read the code. But my point is that mm -hmm. when you have these pieces of code written differently and inconsistently, mm -hmm. it causes a jarring mental shift. And you have to change your way of thinking about the code. So maybe one person likes to write functionally. They might use RxJS or some, mm -hmm. some way of like using lambdas or maybe even serverless functions. And another developer comes onto that project mm -hmm. and decides that they want to implement everything using <laughs> you know, another technology. They write object-oriented. Object-oriented. Classes and extensions and, yeah. Classes. Classic example, right? Because a lot of React developers mm -hmm. complain about OOP and React. They hate it. They don't like it. It doesn't work for them. They think that React hooks are the best and that everybody should use React hooks. And so when they go on a project and they see all this OOP stuff, mm -hmm. their instinct is to say, oh, well, I'm going to go in and refactor out all of that OOP stuff because I'm scared of code that I don't understand, <laughs> right? To be a little bit facetious here. And I think that's a big trap. That's a mistake. What you suggest as your second option, Mike, of mm -hmm. call it old code and don't touch it, that's the senior level mentality. You only modify code that you absolutely have to modify. And that does boil down to keep it super simple. Reduce the scope. Don't do a refactoring job if you don't need to refactor the style of code. If you have your code base and it's written in like three or four different styles, unfortunately, that is unfortunate mm -hmm. because that means you have to suffer the readability problem that I described of the mental shift of changing the way that you think about problems, but it's not your fault. Like there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is to write code that's maintainable from then on. So if you get a feature you need to work on, if, if you do happen to touch the say OOP code that's written with React classes, then by all means, go ahead and refactor it. But remember that you're taking on extra scope with that. And that could cost you a delay. That's scope creep. That's not originally in, in the, the scope of the particular feature that you'll be implementing, most likely. Well, let's look at a benefit. And to try and highlight the benefit, let's take a look at, you know, back when I was in creative writing classes and majoring in English, we would have these little tricks that we would do to try to help us edit better as writers. And one of the tricks was to read your article backwards, word for word. And uh, one of the reasons we would do that is because it, it would help us identify issues with our grammar, issues with spelling, certainly, but also it would help us identify places where our capacity to carry a cohesive conversation or a cohesive thought through our writing would derail because we would find ourselves trying to catch up to the previous conversation constantly. So one of the things that I think about that shift in thought as to how you go about reading code that's written differently is actually a benefit. I think it forces you to, to think about the code that you're reading differently. It focuses your mind on breaking out of the general paradigm and patterns that you would normally implement to try and write your own code. And in trying to read somebody else's code that was written differently from the way that you would write it is actually a benefit because you are looking at it with the clarity of somebody who hasn't been looking at it for the last day or the last three weeks. You also have an opportunity then when you're reviewing someone else's code to learn a new way to do code. This is how I learned how to write trinary operator for the first time. This is how I learned how to refactor code based on that 80 column line that you often see in IDEs that people don't really think about. This is how I learned to spot repetition. Uh, speaking of don't repeat yourself, the squint test on code, you, you zoom it out to the point where you can't read a line of it. And then you can spot repetition snap just like that. When you're looking at somebody's code that's been written in a different way from how you do it, uh, you have an opportunity to spot syntax errors real fast. I would argue the other way though. Mm -hmm. I think if you mm -hmm. follow a certain way of writing code that 
favors, say, one approach over the other, whether or not that's functional components or class-based components in terms of the React world. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our listeners use React. I think it becomes easier for you to understand when the existing developers follow the workflow that you already use. So you have less things to think about. It may be beneficial to you in certain cases, especially as a junior developer, because it forces you to learn different paradigms. But I think as you go towards more, say, senior level, maybe intermediate level, I think then it becomes more of a task of having to decipher what this person meant, what they really meant to do. That could certainly be just an indication that mm -hmm. maybe myself or some of my colleagues maybe just doesn't have enough experience in other paradigms. But it also could mean that there is a mental shift. You have to make that adjustment and think about the problems in a different way. That can be helpful. But I think in the business context, I think a lot of times it's just easier mm -hmm. if you have a consistent workflow that doesn't surprise you, where you can think about the problems logically and reason about them the way that you reasoned about all the other domain problems. I think that it, it can be beneficial, but I think in most cases, I haven't really seen that benefit myself, just in my own experience, though. I don't work on big teams, so I don't know what that's like. I don't know how, uh, how much more challenging it would be for me to have 14 people writing code 14 different ways and me having to do code reviews all day. Maybe that's where the idea of standards come into play. I'm, I'm trying to find some common ground and some, some commonalities between both where what you just said and what you just explained has some impact on my world. And uh, I think that looks more like some stuff that we're already doing, actually, if I think mm -hmm. about it. We're already yeah. kind of where you're at. There are some things that are in our linter that are unique to us. In one sense, we use ESLint standard, but then we also don't allow any console logs to be pushed through into production. And we don't use any kind of logging software at all. Uh, one of the reasons we do that is an opinion. It comes back to an opinion of me not wanting a verbose log when trying to debug something. It drives me up the air. You know, when you're constantly flooded with a thousand lines of console, how do you find which particular line it is that you're looking for? It takes longer. Definitely. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we don't do. And that definitely is an opinion on my part. And we've had, have currently at least one really talented developer who disagrees with me on that particular point. And they really like a really massively verbose, constantly reporting all the time so that they can feel comfortable that it's working. Well, that's what tests you know? are for, right? Like you write the test to have mm -hmm. that confidence. So for to me anyway, at least from what I've heard so far, that sounds more like a junior developer. I'm not saying that he's, he's not talented. I just, from no, no, we're talking about a lot of integrations, okay. um, a lot of, um, different endpoints to a lot of different third-party providers um, doing based on cron that needs to cycle on a regular basis. Oh, okay. It's more back-end work. Yeah, and when it does nothing, how do you know it's well doing nothing because there's nothing to do? Well, can't you just like place a breakpoint? Like, I don't know if you guys use like Node.js, you can just install like a debugger for Visual Studio, just place a breakpoint and follow through those breakpoints to see the values as you go. You don't need to console. Oh, those. no, that's no. See, it's, it's more, it's, it's more around the question of everything's okay when you see a log and it's doing its thing and the log is reporting as it should be. I don't know. Like that's what tests are for, right? Like you write those tests to see if, if those lines get hit and you could even use tools like mm -hmm. Istanbul if you use uh, Node.js, right? Oh, sure. But then tests are okay until you try and put it in the real world <laughs> yeah. and against somebody else's server. Right. And then they go and they change the way that they decide to organize their JSON object or they rename a particular parameter or mm -hmm. authentication isn't working anymore because they upgraded and they no longer use TLS v1.1. That There's a real world example that we have. Right. And so you, you say, oh, did you see the console log mm -hmm. for this thing? And then you know, based on that information that mm -hmm. they did in fact reach that so-called breakpoint and that everything works until that point where you had that console log statement, right? So I think for them, there's a certain comfort in knowing not that there's a console error that came up and that there's something now that they need to go fix. You know, we all have those experiences where there's an error in the oh, log yeah. and we track it Definitely. down and we go through and we do yeah. that thing. And certainly he uses a lot of console errors as well. But there is a certain sort of comfort in knowing just because there's no error 
it doesn't mean that everything's working correctly. If you can go and you can make a request and then a console logs nothing to do, at least you know it made the request. If it makes the request and it doesn't log an error or is it going to time out? How long is that timeout set for? Do you just want to wait until it comes back and says, I have nothing to do? Or it throws that error timeout or a 401 code or... Well, I think, I think that outlines the problem though of relying on console logs and console errors and all the different console warnings and so on, because then you just start to rely on those messages and you stray away from using the tools that we already have at our disposal, such as the debugger and the network tab in our browser tools. Debugger only works if you have an error. No, you can just place a breakpoint in the debugger in the Chrome Dev Tools or Firefox. Tool. Well, that doesn't work in production, though. You can't put a breakpoint in production. Right. So if we're talking about like just for production for customers, when they have an error, it's of some kind, right? We don't have the repro then. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. He likes he likes a really verbose log in production as well. And I want nothing in production. Ah. So yeah, so when it's in production, it's reporting everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay. There's a certain sense of comfort there. And then if, if there's an error, then you can kind of look at those console statements and understand what happened. Whereas if you didn't have those, then you would have to get a report from the customer, understand what they did, or maybe even a screen recording, and then go from there in your own development environment. Well, you have to, you know, steps reproduce is always the hardest part of this job, yeah, I think. absolutely. Because uh, if you can't reproduce it, how do you fix it? Stack locks are a good one. There's, there's a number of different things out there that, that can help you track those down. I've been spoiled by a couple of third-party providers in that sense. Who Have you tried Hotjar? I've used that at one point. I liked it. But it seems really invasive in terms of privacy. Yeah. Um, I've also used New Relic as well. Yeah. These things are like incredibly powerful, but like over-the-top expensive. I don't know many startups that can afford those kinds of tooling. Well, you can, you can just install your own logger, right? So... Mm-hmm. As long as you, like, have you ever heard of Piwik, P-I-W-I-K, right? You can install that locally on your own server, host it internally. For example, if you mm-hmm. have like a droplet on DigitalOcean, you can just go ahead and mm-hmm. install that and you don't have to pay anything other than the five US dollars a month. Yeah, I think it's a one-click install in their store as well. Yeah. Which is a misnomer. <laughs> well, Nothing one-click on DigitalOcean is truly one-click anyway, like... Uh, I appreciate that you don't have to go and app get install, yeah. blah, 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 you know, but you're still going to have to log in and go and configure and enter your API tokens and endpoints and SSL certs. And, yeah. So I think, I think either you take that approach of DIY, adding more scope to your project in terms of the logging and so forth, mm-hmm. or you have a system that you develop internally that allows you to do those console logs so that when a customer has a problem in production, you have access to the information you need to reproduce it. Although... That does beg the question of why can't you just ask the customer in the first place how they reproduce the problem or ask them for a screen recording? Could this maybe even boil down to communication at some point between the business or and the customer? I wonder about that. Well, uh, I don't know if there's a clear way to answer that, really. Getting into the weeds here again, I think. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this still boils down to reducing the scope. And I, I will add as well to that, that we can also perform UX testing. User experience testing can really help here to reduce the scope and not have to go back and change different components or different appearances. I would definitely agree with you, Mike. The first part though, just do that physical prototyping. Make sure that your customer understands what you'll deliver and do that iteration, that constant iteration, get that constant feedback. If you don't have access to a customer, you can always request some user testing online. There's a number of websites that will do that. Unfortunately, that's not the best. The best thing to do is to get your customer and have access to your customer. Who would be using your app? If you'll be using your app, then that's fine. But also remember, you'll have a bias. So perform any user testing if you can early on so that you don't have to go back and change everything around. But if you do, that's okay. But don't over-engineer it. Don't make it super complicated because you think you might have this requirement down the road. Just do the bare minimum to reduce the scope so that you keep it simple. You keep your whole project simple and you understand all the moving parts in your project. Uh, one of my personal pet peeve actually is around this concept of build it and test it. I don't agree with that. I think you should test it, then build it. This is why we do wireframes on whiteboards and draw them out real fast. And we get user acceptance testing based on the wireframes up front before we build anything. We do a lot of research on who our target users are. We reach out to those companies. We talk to them directly. We go and we visit them 
or they come into us or lately it's mostly been online stuff but we'll talk to them about what their experience of the problem is and what priority do they weigh on different workflows what is their specific workflow i work in business to business not business to consumer but this still applies when you find your target customer and you ask them you know what are their expectations of this particular piece of software or this particular feature that you're doing in how it can solve their problem you quickly find out that a you do not experience the problem the same way that they do and b your ideas and expectations for what the solution might be similar but different and you do that enough times and you're going to find out that pretty much everybody experiences the problem differently most of the people have the same expectations for what a solution looks like and out of those that group of people the actual solution that you're proposing would be completely ineffective because you don't look at it or experience it the same way. So what we try to do is we try to run these things past our users in advance of building them. Because if the first time they see it is after it's built, now you have a big problem because you have to go and you have to change a whole bunch of stuff based on user feedback. And user-driven design is great, but you have to get that design cycle and that feedback cycle up front. You can't wait until you've spent three months building something and then say, what do you think? Because you will fail 99% of the time. And now you're going to be out uh, three months of dev time and, and it's, it's too late to actually capture the learning that you can get from your users. So you want to keep it simple, tighten up that feedback cycle. If you're building something for yourself, that feedback cycle is zero, right? If you're building it for a consumer and you happen to have a, identified who your target customer is and you have your user profiles and uh, you have a little bit of demographics and you've identified those people and you can reach out to them and you can run some designs past them great do that before you write a single line of code but even before you hire a developer you should have that kind of information down i think you have a really good point there because even having that understanding of the domain problem, we talk about the domain problem a lot here, but I think it really means a lot because if you understand the domain problem, if you understand the problem that these users face when you perform the user UX testing or the user experience testing, that affords you an opportunity to design your code around the problem as opposed to designing your code around a problem the way you understand the problem. This is why I think it's so important for developers to sit in on user experience testing because when there's something that clicks, especially in the enterprise world, this really lacks in the enterprise world. I've had many situations come up where I've asked to see the user experience testing and they would look at me like, why? Why do you want to be a part of the user experience testing? <laughs> a lot of times in the corporate world, in some of my previous jobs, now they seem a little bit open to it, which is good. But it seems like only now we're starting to realize the benefit because when you as a developer get to see your interface getting used by other people, not only does it feel empowering, but it also gives you a sense of what the problem looks like. I don't know, if, Mike, if you've ever heard like talk aloud user experience test where the customer just talks aloud as if they were thinking out loud and you get to see them talk about how they use the software. We should do that. We should do that. We should go use a piece of software and just and just do that sometime. Even just talk aloud and just see how mm -hmm. you think about the problem. <laughs> it's actually really fun because you find all these different inconsistencies in software, even on Facebook, something you probably use quite frequently, or Twitter. There's a lot of inconsistencies and questions that will come up even for a very technically inept user, right? <laughs> even though you'd say that these platforms have so much research behind them. The point is that understanding the domain problem as a software developer really affords you an opportunity to design your software. And I mean design in terms of the variable names, in terms of the way that you keep your code simple, the way that you structure your code, the way that you do an if-else statement. I think for me anyway, I'm a pretty big stickler for consistency in code and also for not shortening variable names. I hate it when people will just write req instead of request, just write request. I know most people know what REQ means, but it could also mean requisition. It could also mean requisite. It could mean like a thousand things. There's a lot of words that start with REQ. Well, context is king, honestly. And I'm good either way. If, if somebody wants to use rec or request, I don't care. I'm of the opinion that I just, I don't like it. I feel like it doesn't help anybody mm -hmm. other than the people who don't have word wrap enabled. So the people who really care about having everything on 80 characters, why do we have to say I? Why not just say uh, 
like index. I mean, that's what I do now. I don't, I don't write I anymore. I just write index. And whenever I see I in a code review, mm -hmm. I say, let's be more clear. How can we name this variable instead? What is it an index of what? You could use N or no, C. No, I just see that's, <laughs> I don't like that. All those variable names. I, I, see, I see those as well. I see those all the time. That's why I think it doesn't work because if you start to use different abbreviations, like, okay, it's one thing if you use I in every single for loop in your whole code base, every time you have a for loop, but it's another thing if you have A, N, Y, or you call it a random letter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure, I think most developers can go in and understand that, but why take that risk? Why not just make your code as clear as possible in the first place? Just write exactly what you're talking about. Don't beat around the bush with your variable names. Just because in school you learn to use the letter I in your for loops doesn't mean that you should. Do whatever the team does and keep your code consistent. That will lead to a lot more simplicity in your code. It reduces the cognitive load. That's what I think of when I think of code simplicity. Reducing that cognitive load of what are we actually talking about. You would be surprised, Mike, all the times that I've come in with students helping them with their code. Mm -hmm. And just by having them hit the F2 key, renaming a few of their variables, you see their faces light up and they understand what they're doing. Because they use those terrible variable names like I, A. And where did they find them? Right. And they, they just copy them from like a, right? They... They learn them from like maybe a Stack Overflow article where they got all the Haskell coders that write X and colon XS. What does X mean? What does XS mean? Why not just write head tail or head rest of the linked list? Mm -hmm. Why take that risk? Why make your code more complicated when you don't need to? And that's a lot of what I think of when I think of code simplicity. It's just unnecessary complication. And I think a lot of developers are doing this right now. A lot of developers, especially junior developers, they come in with the mindset that if they write a for loop with an I variable, mm -hmm. that that will be clearer. But I disagree. I, I have a strong opinion about it. And I, I understand that I have a strong opinion about it. But that strong opinion has helped me to help my team keep consistent. And in my experience, really help to maintain the code long term. And I'm talking about large code bases here. I'm not talking about small code bases. It probably doesn't matter if you have like your own little side project if you use an I. That's not a big deal. I'm talking about projects with like 20 to 30 plus people in it. When you have people mm -hmm. constantly contributing, like you said, Mike, it gets unwieldy and very difficult to do those mental shifts. Well, I think you're using a simple example to try to highlight a complex problem. And I don't want to poo-poo on that because I think your point is well heard in this sense. Coming up with good variable names that are descriptive of what you're writing is very important. I'll give you another example to add on to that. I love variable names that start with get and set, methods that start with get and set. I love that. It tells me right up front what it is that we're talking about. And I think that really sets the expectation for the code line that you're reading. Yeah, for sure. Like keeping it simple in that way makes a lot of sense. It's a paradigm of thinking of the code, though. At least in our case, where we work, we use classes, we use OOP. So when we see the word get, we think of the reserved word get in terms of a class. Oh, I'm not saying a single variable name, three letters long. Yeah, we're talking about methods, like get name or... Yeah, I'm talking about a method like get name, get class, get customer name, get user. I like that. I like to see that. So that kind of leads into one of the suggestions that I would also say, and these are small details, but I think they lead to overall better consistency of code. When you write your variables, don't put in reserved words like new. What does new mean? Delete. Delete. Don't put those in. Avoid those keywords like new, let, it just don't do it. Oh, what was it that I just saw? Oh, the uh, AmCharts 4 actually created their own implementation of MAP, which is not the ES6 implementation of MAP. Why? So I was expecting that to return a new array, and it didn't. And I was lost for about three hours. It drives me up the wall every time I have to do something with AmCharts because of that. There you go. Perfect example of being aware of not overriding things. We're not just talking about overriding things. We're talking about the mental space here. And this also applies to searching. So you oh, search- Oh, sorry, it wasn't map, it was push. Oh, it was push? And push probably yeah. then doesn't mutate, it just returns a new array, I'm guessing, right? Uh, no, push actually extends an object. It, it's not an array to begin with at all, and it has no reference at oh, all wow. for yeah. any of those properties. Yeah. Anyways. Well, I mean, that's one example, but like, you can extend this idea to different domains as well. Having that mind space of understanding what keywords developers will come and search for. So when you search for push, you don't want variable names to start to come up. You want the methods 
the instances of push of array.prototype.push to come up, right? So that's usually what you're looking for. But I, agree, I, I would argue that this is something you can do as you write your code. It's like a mindset to enter as you write your code. You know your keywords, you know that new is a keyword, you know that get is a keyword. In certain cases, it might make sense. I know in our code base, we sometimes write get blah, 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 even though it's not a getter, that's fine, right? So there's a little bit of leniency there. As long as it communicates what the code does, ultimately it's not the end of the world, but I think as a junior developer, these are things to look out for, to improve your code base, to keep it simple, and to reduce the amount of times that these things come up later on. Now, this could also be a premature optimization. But I think I think it all boils down to just having the level of knowledge of the domain. And if mm -hmm. the domain uses the word letter, say we're doing like a writing app for like letters between people, like a pen pal app or something, then you use letter, even though it has the keyword let in it. That makes sense because it's part of the DSL, the domain specific language. So as you talk about it with your potential customers, you understand that domain and that helps to keep the code relevant to the domain problem. It is so hard to try to break down what it is to keep code simple. It's so yeah. hard because at a certain point, you stop thinking about design patterns for code, for example. There's a point at which like you're really gonna be really big on these things and employ them absolutely everywhere. And then there'll be a point where you look back and you go, shit, I haven't thought about that in five years. But it's part of the way that you do things now. It's part of the way that you write code. It's become part of your style of writing code. And everybody is going to develop that. They're either going to develop it to a predetermined structure and style based on what the standards are for the organization that they're writing in, or they're going to learn it by going and working through a different series of large organizations and just completely flex. Yeah. Maybe evenings and weekends when they're working on their own thing is when they can kind of let loose and get a little bit creative and try something different and new. I don't know. Coming back to that 80 column line. Yeah. There's kind of an important part here for understanding and spotting where you're getting too complicated. And if your tabs are approaching that 80 column line, chances are you're too deep into the code and that this is gonna need a refactor. But here's something that I'll say, don't refactor right away. Don't refactor on your first draft. Just write, just be free, just write, go through and get it functional on your first go. Then you can come back after that and you can refactor and edit your code. And that's when you want to start thinking about things like don't repeat yourself. That's when you start looking at places where maybe the reason why your 80 columns tabbed in is because you're actually three functions deep. And this whole thing can be refactored from one giant function into three or four different functions. And maybe the roles and responsibilities of each of those if statements is actually representative of a function inside each one of those if statements, which is exactly one tab in or two spaces in or whatever you're using in your standards. That 80 column marker is still there for a reason. We haven't had to worry about physical terminals restricted to 80 columns because of a monospace font and a computer in, in a very long time. Even now, if you're working in a terminal editor like Vim, you don't have to worry about 80 columns. And so it's not really a thing. But the reason why we keep it around is so that you can know when you're starting to get close to places where you need to start rethinking, man, this is really a lot of indentation. There's something here that we need to take a look, deep look at restructuring. I think that's a good sign to take into consideration for keeping super simple. Yeah, I never looked at it that way, but you've definitely led me to have some insights with this, Mike. Why overcomplicate things and why do we have all these different nested functions? I think there's room to learn for all of us, including myself, because I've definitely written that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have written fake nested CSS classes or selectors with, uh, with mm -hmm. SAS or some kind of a preprocessor. And with the nesting just coming with the at nest, we'll start to see that even more. But I remember reading CSS Wizardry's blog about why nesting is bad. <laughs> And so <laughs> I remember learning that and then I thought to myself, yeah, well, why am I nesting all these CSS selectors? And Harry goes on to write that maybe it makes sense just to write vanilla CSS and not have any of those nested selectors because then we're starting to read up and up and we're trying to understand the context. So while it affords us some flexibility early on in the development process, later on, now we're, we're looking up and up and trying to see what our selectors actually look like. And so it all relates to the same thing of why do we have 
these really, really indented pieces of code when we could potentially refactor those into other functions. I do like that idea of having those alarm bells ring when we have severely indented code. But you could also chalk that down, Mike, to just a stylistic approach because I've seen so many developers. I'm of a certain opinion, right? I don't like the idea of putting dot maps and dot reduce on their own lines. I don't like that at all. But I think a lot of developers think they can get out of that by kind of cheating and maybe having like two spaces instead of four. Then they maybe get themselves two extra characters and now they can look really fancy and cool because they use an arrow function when they actually don't need it. When they could just use a normal function, they never needed to use the keyword this in their arrow function. So why are they using it? Well, because they think it's cool and they can do it all in one line. I think that's a very easy trap to fall into as an, a developer. And I even see it a lot with yeah, but you're going to go down that road, right? Like you're going to have those experimentations. You're going to try those things. You have to. Well, you early have to on, try yeah. them. I think like early yeah, on, that's a good thing to do. But when, you, when you're finally, you know, making that merge request, that's something we want to look at. We should have those alarm bells come off as a team, as an organization. And I speak about large scale operations here, enterprise. That's where we have those code reviews and we identify that the the 80 character line has been exceeded. So time to look at this again, maybe see how we can break mm. these this logic into other functions. There's also a concept around repetition in trying to make things simple, in trying to find places where your code is actually repeating itself. That could actually be done as a function instead of just repetition. And that's another good thing to look for is where you're basically doing the same thing over and over and over again. And while you maybe you've written out the same code three times and there's only one parameter that changes between those three things, well, maybe you just create a function, you pass in the parameter and it spits back that one thing. This is a bit of an abstraction here, writing a function to handle repetition in code. And that's fine. This is a positive way to take that concept. This is a positive way to make your job easier. This is kind of one of those things where then, where does that repetition code go? Where do you put it? What file does it go in? Yeah, and that's the start question we started with. As a junior developer, mm -hmm. we often don't know the architecture that we follow as a team. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first place to put it is in your own scope. Keep it small, keep it tight, keep it simple, keep it relevant to the problem that you yourself are working on. And don't worry about, if you're especially if you're junior dev, Keep it relevant to the problem that you are assigned and the code base that you are working in and don't try and architect your way out of it. Try and architect yourself into that shell because the architecture for a junior dev is not your responsibility. Architecture is your lead developer or your senior developer or team responsibility. That's something that you have a conversation about outside of your scope. If you have a function, and this just happened in our work, Somebody actually created a little component and it was reusable because he thought that it could be used elsewhere in the future. That's over-optimizing right there, right? It was over-optimizing, but it was really nice to see that they had that idea. It was really nice to see that they were thinking in terms of optimizing in the future. And this is one of the places where maybe a comment is a good thing. You know, that was literally next on my list of things to talk about. <laughs> Commenting. Commenting. Yes. Yeah. What is the purpose of a comment? And what point is code self-commenting? Is that what's what's the, what am I trying to say there? Self-documenting code, right? Self-documenting yeah. code. Yeah, that's what it is. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it it's a really important thing to talk about because when do you need a comment? Do you need a comment at all? Does it make sense to have comments or just have decent variable names that represent the code and therefore we shouldn't need comments at all? Well, I think the best time to put a comment is a warning to future me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a warning for future Sean. We did it this way because we did it this way because is a really great way to start a comment because it's not necessarily relevant in the future as to why you did it this way. Yeah. And sometimes we do this a lot in our business where we just put like a to do. That's the classic way of doing it all in caps, all to do colon. And then yep. whatever you want to yep. do later on, follow up with this. So yep. sometimes we we'll just it. put like a name or a ticket number where then mm -hmm. whenever you search for that ticket number, you find all the places you need to refactor that later on down the mm -hmm. road. But I think a better example, like you said, Mike, is just saying, well, we did this because this reason, that reason. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I think I see a lot of comments that don't really add anything. And that's the danger that I think we enter into when we advocate for comments, because comments are good. They do help you understand things. They fill in that extra gap of 
misunderstanding, a potential misunderstanding, especially for somebody entering the project with a new set of eyes who hasn't had to deal with the problem before. So I think there's two types of comments. The first one is the, we did this because comment. And then there's mm -hmm. another type of comment, which is we need to look at this later. And then you pass in like a ticket number or some kind of a reference to a URL. I've done this a lot, even in mm -hmm. working in large enterprises, a lot of my GitHub projects, whenever I borrowed something from Stack Overflow, I always comment where <laughs> I got it from so that yeah, I can see where I got it from. And I can remember, I copy pasted that. Those are great. And then sometimes I'll... Yeah, and then you just you reference yeah. it, and it it almost feels like a back in university when you would credit your sources, <laughs> and I think that's a respectful thing mm -hmm. to do as well to the original authors of it. But it also does yourself the service of knowing that the, you might have to come back and refactor this later. You know, I just copy pasted this these few lines of code, change the variable names around, so I'll just put slash slash, or you could also do it in the beginning with JS doc style, say borrowed uh, shamelessly from this URL, yeah, you know, with some, some self-deprecating humor. Yeah. So yeah. have you ever gone back uh, and looked at code that you wrote like four or five years ago, come across one of those comments and then opened up that URL only to find that sure enough, there is now a more popular answer and a better way of doing it. Yeah. 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 And I've, I've often done that on my own answers. You're stuck overflow. You, you answer a question, you feel so good about it. And then three years later, you realize that you were wrong. <laughs> so you very silently go into Stack Overflow feeling really sheepish and guilty, but you go in and you change that answer. And then all the other people who, who have that highlighted as the correct answer, now they have a different answer mm -hmm. because you decided that you did it wrong four years ago or five years ago. The technology has changed something along those lines, right? Well, I, even then, just best practices change. Yeah. You might have been right four or five years ago for the time. And then, you know, ES 2020 comes out or whatever the next one is. And now there's some new tools and that means that there's a new way to do this. And do you go back and you update your answer because now you have access to for each map and reduce <laughs> and you no longer have to write for loops that quite that way anymore. And right. going back and updating your answers is, is perfectly valid, but going back and revisiting those answers because somebody was kind and past Sean left that link and now you can go and you can revisit it and now you can bring in all the new learning. That's one of the wonderful things that happens, right? Exactly. This concludes the 10th episode of Web Perspectives. In the next episode, DJ and I continue our discussion on DevOps and how to involve DevOps talent in workplaces that favor full stack developers over specialized DevOps engineers. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.